We're in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and so I'm trusting you're ready to get into the Word together. Will you pull out your Bibles open to Luke chapter 3? And if you don't have a Bible, don't despair. Ushers are coming down the aisle right now. Just raise your hand. We'd love to give you a Bible there today. You can take that home as a gift. Your first gift this Christmas is the Word of God. And I'm going to give you the lay of the land here over the next couple weeks as we get settled. So next weekend is a very important weekend in the life of our church. We have two days of worship services, Sunday and then Monday. And what I want to do today is let you in on the vision and the purpose of those services so that you can be a part of it. So both of those days... Sunday morning at 9 and 11 and Christmas Eve at 2 p.m., 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. are are geared towards a holiday worship where you can invite friends, neighbors, uh, co-workers, anyone, and, and, and bring them to church and share the love of Christ with them. Maybe you thought, I can't get people to come with me on Christmas Eve, but I could get someone to come on Christmas on, on the 23rd Sunday morning. So we'll have two services Sunday morning. I think we got a slide for this. We'll have two services in the morning next Sunday, but no 5 p.m. service because we'll be getting the building ready for Christmas Eve. And then when you come back Christmas Eve, it's 2 p.m. we got a slide for this. 2 p.m., 4 p.m., 11 p.m. All three of those services are the same in worship and message. Uh, and the, with the exception that at the two and the four, those two services have a children's ministry downstairs. Um, and then I'll also tell you that that 2 p.m. service tends to be really crowded. So if you want to avoid crowds and make room for folks who are visiting, come to the four or better yet, come back to the 11 and bring in Christmas morning together worshiping. Awesome thing, huh? Take this postcard with you when you leave. The purpose of this postcard is to help you Remember to invite people to join you to worship. Trust the Lord with that. Pray about it. Share it with someone. See what God will do. And then when you come back on the 30th of December, we're going to sort of land the plane on the first major section of the Gospel of Luke. So the, the first part of chapter 4 is the temptation in the wilderness. That's kind of the end of the first section of Luke. And I thought, what better sermon to preach the day before New Year's Eve than a sermon on temptation? I don't know. It just seems to make sense. <laughs> so we're doing that, okay? We're doing the temptation, and then, we'll, and then we'll launch in in the new year to another section of Luke, and it's the ministry of Jesus in Gal Galilee, and it'll be an awesome thing. But this morning, okay, this morning, we have come to the moment you've all been waiting for, all right? I know you've been saying, I'm waiting, Pastor, on bated breath for a sermon about the genealogy. <gasps> Today is your day, all right? Today is your day. Because our, our study in the Luke brings us to a list of 77 of the most difficult names to pronounce in the entire Bible, okay? And because we're preaching verse by verse through this, I'm gonna preach to you all 77 names. It's a 77 point sermon. No, it's not, it's not. But we do believe that every word is inspired by the spirit and we believe that there's a purpose for this list. But what is it? What could possibly be the purpose of a genealogy? Maybe you're like me and you get to this and you just, Go, I'm going to read through this as quick as I can and get to the good stuff, right? What's Luke doing with the genealogy? 
Why did he put it here in particular? If you've read the Bible at all, you know that actually there are genealogies all throughout the Bible. There's a genealogy in Matthew. There are genealogies in the Old Testament. So it would appear that the ancient people were fascinated with tracing their ancestral line. What was the fascination with this? Now, of course, we know that we actually have our own little fascination going on with ancestry in our culture, don't we? Heard of a little thing called Ancestry.com? Heard of that? It's a multi-billion dollar industry with millions and millions of subscribers. You get a kit mailed to you and, they, and you share your DNA and then they trace your genealogy and, and people are fascinated by it and it's making a ton of money. You know, Spotify got, got in on this. Spotify created ancestry playlists. This is true. You find out your, your ancestry and then you go on to Spotify and you listen to the music that your ancestors are listening to for only $99 a month. It's a great deal, right? Okay. And we're fascinated by celebrities who find out who's in their genetic line, right? And there are whole TV shows made about this. A couple years ago, they, they traced Barack Obama's ancestry and they discovered to their shock that he has a second cousin. Do you know who it is? Dick Cheney. This is true. <laughs> Dick Cheney. And I don't know who's more angry about that, but anyway, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> So what is it? Is it just mere fascination? Not at all. We actually look at your Bible and let me show you something. Luke chapter three. This, this genealogy actually provides the critical link between the episode that just happened before this interesting episode that we're going to look at where Jesus is baptized. And then the very next episode, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and what Luke wants us to see is that the only way that you can understand the connection between those episodes is to understand what's happening in the genealogy. And let me give you a clue. The theme that holds these three episodes together is the last three words of the genealogy in your Bible. Look at your own Bible, verse 38. What are the three words? Son of God. Son of God. When Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water, God speaks from heaven and says, you are my son. And then in the genealogy, Luke traces this building kind of crescendo of the son of the son of the son of, and he ends with the son of God. And then the son of God goes into the wilderness where Satan tempts him by saying, if you are the son of God. And then he tempts him. And so the reader begins to realize, I have to stop reading over stuff so quickly because actually, if I don't know what the son of God means, I won't understand the temptation in the wilderness. What's happening here? In the Bible, the, the phrase son of God does not mean that Jesus is the literal offspring of God. It's a title that's trying to tell us something about his divine identity and his purpose. What does it mean? What's the significance? In order to answer that question, we're going to go back in now and we're going to read the Bible the way we should read it, which is we're going to slow down and pay attention. We're going to start with the baptism in verse 21. Will you look at it in your own Bible? Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And then in a few moments, I'll read to you the list of 77 names and you will lean forward in your chair on bated breath with every word. It will be amazing. 
This is a little prophetic moment right there. Okay. Luke 3, we look at verse 21. Here's what happened. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, many people, when they read that, the very first question that they ask is, why would Jesus get baptized? Like, why, why would Jesus do this? Some of you are asking that question right now. And especially, you remember last Sunday, we learned from Pastor Christopher that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And that's even more confusing for the reader. The reader would say, why would Jesus participate in a baptism of repentance? It's not because Jesus needed to repent of sin. In fact, that's going to become clear in just a moment. What's happening here is that Jesus, at the beginning of his public ministry, is sending out a signal to the human race that says, I want you to know that I've come to identify with you, to stand in solidarity with you and to be your representative so that I can save you from your sins. And so Jesus participates in the kind of baptism that you and I need to participate in, not because he is sinful, but because he, he, he's with us. It's amazing. But what's more, when you read, you realize the baptism is not even really the point. I mean, Luke blows past the baptism. And the real point is this vision that happens. In verse 22, when you look at it in your Bible, it's the vision that is the point. It's this revelation of God that is the critical moment at this juncture. Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism and he's praying and we're presented with this heavenly, cosmic, breathtaking moment. And if you look at your Bible, there, there, you notice there are three sort of ingredients to this vision. The first thing that happens is that the heavens open, right? And then the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove and falls upon Jesus. And then finally, a voice comes from heaven to speak over Jesus these words of identity. And we have to understand all three of these things in order to understand who is the Son of God and what does it mean? Why do I need to know about it? When Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, he was praying, and immediately Luke tells us that a hole opened up in the heavens. It's very graphic, actually. The word means to rend. It means that there's a tear created between this dimension and another dimension. Imagine being there. It just seems like an average day. And suddenly you look up and the heavens are torn apart. And you realize, I'm looking from one dimension, one realm into a very different realm. That would have been amazing. Actually, we're very fascinated with this idea too in our culture. In our movies, we love movies where a portal is opened up, right? From one dimension to another. 
And it's cool. But there's always really bad stuff coming through. Demagogues and, you know, and aliens that the Incredible Hulk has to kill. Anyway, but th this is different, okay? Because in this vision, something's going to come through that will forever change the world. The vision comes from a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. I'm just going to put this on the screen so that you can see it. We listen to what Isaiah prophesied because this moment in Isaiah gets fulfilled in the ministry of the Son of God. Isaiah said, Isaiah 64, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, that you, it's, it's, a, it's a longing. Isaiah is longing, oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. And now Luke says, reader, pay attention. That's what's happening in this moment. Anytime God tears a hole in the heavens, it's because God has decided enough. Enough already. I'm going to come down and do something. I'm going to intervene. And Luke says, do you get it? The son, the son of God means God has come down to change the course of human history. Amazing. The heavens are torn open. And then what happens next? Can you imagine being there and looking? The, you would have been waiting on bated breath to see what is going to come through that portal. And maybe you could see it off in the distance. And here it comes, this 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 vision of God's Holy Spirit in bodily form like a dove breaking into our realm. Amazing. It was not an actual bird. The point of the vision was to say, this is not just a subjective thing, this is an objective reality. The Holy Spirit of God is falling on the Son of God to empower him. Amazing. In the Hebrew scriptures, a dove represents gentleness, purity, and good news. So the vision was to say, this is my pure, sinless, gentle bearer of good news. He's the son of God. Profound. One of the things we've learned in our study in the Gospel of Luke is that the Holy Spirit is like a key theme throughout. You've noticed this, if you're paying attention, that anytime someone gets filled with the Holy Spirit, they have the ability to know things about the divine realm that they should not know. And they have the ability to speak those things with power. That's what happens when you get filled with the Holy Spirit. So we remember this, we, we, we studied this account where Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth. She just has heard from Gabriel, it's crazy, I know, but you're going to conceive. I know that you're a virgin, but you're going to conceive and you're going to give birth to the Son of God. 
And Mary leaves immediately to go visit her cousin Elizabeth. And remember, we learned that when Mary walked to the door of Elizabeth's house, she did not even know yet that she had conceived. She didn't know she was pregnant. She walks in the room, and who is the first person in the room to identify that Mary has conceived the Son of God? It's the spirit-filled baby John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb who leaps for joy, empowered by the Spirit. And then Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, and she speaks truth to Mary. You're blessed. And what happens is you just keep reading Luke, and there's account after account after account. Simeon gets filled with the Spirit. He says something profound. Zachariah gets filled with the Spirit. He speaks profound truth over and over and over. And then you come to the public ministry of Jesus Christ, and what happens? Jesus Christ gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Amazing. He's not only conceived by the Holy Spirit, there's actually a moment that launches his public ministry where the Holy Spirit falls to empower him to accomplish God's purposes. Let me show you just a couple evidences of that. Have you ever noticed? So look right past the genealogy to chapter 4, verse 1. It's right after this moment, the Spirit has fallen on Christ. We'll talk about the genealogy in a minute. What's the very next thing that happens? And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by whom? By the Spirit. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then look at verse 14 of that chapter. Chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the who? The Spirit to Galilee. And then just a couple verses later, verse 18, Jesus gives his first public sermon. He opens from the book of Isaiah 61. And what does he say? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Amazing. Jesus, filled by the Holy Spirit, to empower him, to guide him, and to enable him to accomplish God's purposes. And then what Luke does is that Luke writes the book of Acts And he describes the very same thing, except this time the Spirit falls on the apostles to empower them to do many of the same things. And River West, here's the the scandalous thing about it. That same Spirit who filled Christ has filled your heart to empower you to do God's purposes. Now, we're going to talk about that at the end. Unbelievable. And Luke says, this is who the Son of God is. He's the Spirit-filled agent who's come to carry out God's purposes. And then what is more, the heavens are open, the spirit falls, and then finally God decides to speak. As if the vision wasn't grandiose enough, this is the moment where God says, now I'm, now I'm going to speak. And what does he say? Look at it, verse 22 in your Bible, chapter 3, verse 22. Here's what, here's what he said. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You're the son of God. You know, in Luke's gospel, other people have already said it. Angels have identified that Jesus is the son of God. Demons have identified that he's the son of God. But now we come to the definitive proclamation. This is the one that matters. It comes from the creator of heaven and earth. And he says, now I'm going to tell the world who he is. He's the son of God. 
And what I love about it, what's so beautiful about it, if you look, is that it's not just about information. There's an affection going on there. Did you notice that? There's affection. God says, you're my son and you're the object of my love. I love you. And you know what what else? I'm pleased with you. How powerful. Every single one of us knows how important it is to have someone that you care about speak those kinds of words over you. And many of you know how painful it is when those kinds of words get withheld from you by the people who should have said them to you. Right? A mom or a dad or someone who just said, I love you. I'm so proud of you. So moms and dads, we know how important it is to speak a word like this over our kids. When Lauren was tiny, she was two years old, she used to sit in the living room and play, and she was a very focused child, and she would be playing. And I would do this game with her where I would, I would go, Lauren, and then she wouldn't look at me, and I'd go, Lauren, and then she would look up, and I would go, I love you, and then she would go, whatever. And then she would play with whatever she's playing with. And then I would say, Lauren, Lauren. And then she'd look up and it became a game because then she would like try to not make eye contact with me, you know, and I would say, I love you. I just love you. You're my kid. I'm proud of you. Why do you think God would say that? Can you look at your Bible? I think he said, you're my beloved son and I'm pleased because God knew what Jesus was going to have to do to fulfill his call as the son of God, that he was going to suffer and hurt and bleed and die. And so God said, you're the son of God and I'm proud and I love you. Amazing. In one phrase, God brings together two Old Testament prophecies. When he says, you are my son, that phrase comes from Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about God's eternal king. And in Psalm 2, the psalm describes an anointed one, an eternal anointed one, and at a critical moment in verse 7, which I'll put on the screen, and you can go there this afternoon and read it yourself. But in a critical moment, God speaks truth over this anointed Messiah, this king. And God says, not only are you my anointed one, but it says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. So the son of God is God's Messiah, God's king. But then you fast forward into the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, which I'll put on the screen, God speaks to another figure whom he calls his servant. And what the reader discovers is that servant is the same person. It's the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. And he will also be a servant who will suffer. And Isaiah says, behold, my servant whom my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put who? 
I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then Isaiah continues and talks about, this will be a servant who will suffer. And then you begin to realize that the Son of God is a title for a person who will come into God's world as God's eternal king, but he will not be like other kings. This will be a king who will humble himself and he will serve all of humankind and he will suffer and die. Amazing. And from that point forward in Luke's gospel, Jesus begins to actually fulfill all of those things and he knows that it's coming. Jesus always had his face set towards Jerusalem, Luke tells us in chapter 9. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any way you could take this cup from me, the cup of suffering, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew, I am God's king, I am God's son, and I am God's servant who will suffer. Amazing. And in just a couple weeks, we'll learn that this son goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's the first moment in his public ministry. So why then does Luke add the genealogy? We look now at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. We need, we need to see something in the genealogy that Luke is doing. And so I'm not kidding. I'm actually going to read to you every single name in here, all right? And you have to pay attention. No sleeping, all right? In fact, I, I, I want to say something to you about this. I read this genealogy like 20 times this week because I wanted to practice because I don't want to look dumb up here trying to pronounce these things. And I was reading it, and I, it dawned on me every single name that I'm about to read represents a real human being who lived on this earth for 80, 90, 120 years, we don't know. And then I thought, what are the possibilities that 200 years from now, my entire life will be distilled to a name on a list like this? I know that I would want people to realize that name represents an entire lifespan. Yesterday, we said goodbye to a beloved saint in our church, Steve Strager, who was an incredible man of God. He died too early from a disease that's killed too many people, cancer. And his memorial service was a tour de force of testimony about a man who served Jesus Christ. And his name, heaven forbid that his name ever becomes just a name on a list that we blow past. So every name represents someone. And as I read this, I'm going to have you underline a few of these, and I'm going to tell you about them, okay? Pray for me for the gift of pronunciation. Here we go. None of these names will appear on the 2019 famous baby names. I guarantee you. Ready? Here we go. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph which is just Luke's way of reminding us that Joseph was not his biological father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jane, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, 
the son of Nahum, the son of Elsai, the son of Nagay, the son of Mat, the son of Matatias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel. Stop, underline Zerubbabel. I'm actually being serious. Underline Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, maybe you did not know this, actually was a, a powerful governor in the history of Israel who was with the people when they were in captivity. He came from the line of kings and, and Cyrus, who was the leader of Persia, allowed Zerubbabel to lead the first group of Israelites back into the promised land. Zerubbabel got to lead them out of captivity and Zerubbabel shows up in Jesus's lineage. Just a little interesting fact back there. Okay, he was the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Underline David. King David. Luke says, I want you to know, Jesus comes from the line of kings. He comes from the tribe of Judah. He's, he has messianic roots. David was the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amenadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, underline Abraham. Luke says, Jesus comes from the offspring of God's people, Israel. He represents the people of the nation of Israel. Who is the son of Terah? The son of Nahor, the son of Serug. Underline Serug. Very important. I'm just kidding. It's totally not important at all. Go on. <laughs> just checking to make sure you're still awake. The son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth the son of Adam, underline Adam. Because Luke wants to say, Jesus comes from the very root of humanity itself. He's from the tribe of Adam. And so are you. And so am I. And who is Adam? Adam is the son of God. Matthew has a genealogy too, but in Matthew's genealogy, he stops at Abraham. But Luke says, I have to take you back and show you something else. You see, Matthew says, if you're going to understand what it means to be the son of God, you need to realize that Adam was supposed to be the son of God. But he failed. Jesus and Adam are both the son of God. Adam was the son of God because 
God created him with his own hands from the dust of the earth. He formed Adam together out of dust and he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. Adam did not have biological parents. He was the son of God and he was an image bearer. God said, I'm creating you in my image, which means your mission is to represent me in this world and obey me. But Adam failed. He went into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan and he succumbed to temptation and caused the human race to spiral into sin and death. And so God says, I'll send another son of God to redeem back what it means to be son of God. And this son of God will obey. This son of God will succeed where Adam failed. This son of God will be led back into the wilderness to be tempted by a serpent. Did you know that in the Bible, only two people face Satan face to face? Adam and Jesus. One fails and another obeys. And now you go, I understand what the purpose of the temptation is. This is Jesus' first test. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians when he writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul said, in Adam, we have inherited death, both spiritual and physical. And he picks up on this in Romans 2, where he says, by one act of disobedience, all people became sinful. But then by one act of righteousness and obedience, all shall be made righteous who have faith in that new son of God, Jesus Christ. So powerful, so beautiful. Every time we come to the table, we're celebrating the victory of the Son of God. We, we come to the table to recognize Jesus, his obedience did not end in the desert that day with, with the devil. His obedience led him all the way to a cross where he bled and was pierced, where he laid down his life in obedience to take upon himself the sin of Adam so that we could go free into righteousness. And why would he do that? Because he's the son of God. Amazing. So this morning you'll come and I'll invite you to worship him again with even greater passion. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you three things today that I think God would say to our church in all of this. I want to share with you three things that God is wanting to say. Now, I guarantee you that one of these three will land for you. One of these three will land. And I want you to, when you hear it, grab a hold of it and take it with you. 
I'm going to put them on the screen above me. Here's number one. It's time to let go of your hangups about Jesus. You need to let go. If, if everything we've just learned about Jesus is true, do you know what that means? That means you can build your entire life on Christ. Amen? You can build your whole life on him. If Jesus is the son of God, as Luke is describing it, it means he has no rival, he has no equal, he will never let you down. Never. In my life, people have let me down, churches have let me down, Worldviews, philosophies, ideas, political systems have let me down. There's one person who's never let me down in my entire life, and that person is Jesus, God's son. He's never let me down, and he won't let you down either, but you have to let go of your hangups and turn over your heart to him today. Let go. I told a story a couple months ago about a man who came to my office and he prayed to receive Christ and a month and a half later he died of cancer and it was a powerful moment for me and there's one part of the story that I did not tell you and I want to tell you now his name was Larry and he set up an appointment with me because he had hang-ups about Jesus so we were in my office and we were talking and he was talking about all the things that were going on and this was a brother who had been in our church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and as he was sharing, I kept hearing this word that I knew that I was supposed to say to him. And I didn't want to say it. But the Lord kept saying, say this word. I want you to say this word to Larry. And so finally I said, Larry, I just, I got to say a word to you that I'm hearing. And the word is this, surrender. You need to surrender to Jesus. Let go of your hang-ups. And when I said that, Larry flew back in his chair and he started weeping. And then he sat forward and he said, I'm ready. And we prayed and he received Christ. And then he died of cancer a month later. Amazing. And you know what happened? When we got up, this is the part I didn't tell you. We got up and we were walking to my, the door of my office. And right before he opened the door, he grabbed my arm and he squeezed my arm. And he said, Pastor Adam, make me a promise that you will tell my story as many times as you can to our church because I don't want anyone to leave this realm without experiencing what I just experienced. And I was like, okay, Larry, I will. So I'm telling the story next Sunday as well. No, I won't. <laughs> can I say something to you? This is the living God is saying to you, today is your day, let go. Turn over your life to Christ. Come take communion. Come for prayer. Someone wants to pray with you today. You can build your life on Jesus. I guarantee it. But here's the second thing that God is saying. He's saying it's time to let go of your low view of the Spirit and His work in your life. You've got to let go of that. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to preach and deliver people and proclaim truth. And that spirit is in you. He is in you wanting to guide you in your life. And God is saying, you got to let go of your low view of my spirit. He can do amazing things. 
I once heard a pastor say in a book, he said, I want my life to be unexplainable without the Holy Spirit. I don't want anyone to ever look at my life and go, I can explain that with natural things. I want people to look into our church and say, there's only one explanation for this. The Holy Spirit is guiding and leading. And God would say, it's time to let go and follow him. Okay. And then finally, and this will just take a moment. There's one more thing that I want you to let go of today. God would say, it's time to let go of your low view of the significance of your own life. Your life matters. Your life is not just going to be a name on a list, okay? You're not Serug, all right? You're not. God wants to use you. He wants to use you next weekend. I asked the church, I asked you to make a list of names and to begin praying. And let me tell you something. God wants to use you in the life of one of those people. Let go of that low view you have of your own life and take a step out in faith. I hear people tell stories every week of the Lord using them, answering prayer. It's so encouraging. And my, my word to you is, it's, it's your turn now. It's your turn. Walk out of here, pray, follow the Holy Spirit, worship the Son of God, and then share your joy. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray about that, and we're going to take communion together. Will you bow your heads with me? Well, Lord, we want to say thank you for 77 names. Every one of them matters. And they lead us, Lord, to an understanding of Jesus that we need to see Whereas in Adam, the first son of God, all die. In Jesus Christ, the true son of God, the second son of God, righteousness and life has come into our world. And so we build our life on Jesus today, Lord. And we say thank you for him. And we worship him together. And we pray these things in his name. Everyone said, amen. Amen.